we are on the third week of Prayer 2.0, which is looking at how do we kind of find some, some more options for deepening our spiritual prayer life. Maybe you might feel stagnant. Maybe you might feel like you've done the same thing and just kind of looking for something more. And so our first week, we read through Psalm 1, which is a book of sacred songs, sacred prayers, hymns. And it, it was an invitation to plant your roots down near God's wisdom and to enter into that spiritual life. And last week, we looked at Psalm 102, which was the psalm about writing stuff down. In an illiterate culture, it was asking us to write down our prayers. And so uh, we did a little sketching, kind of visual prayer exercise last week. But today's text invites us into a situation which I don't think is too far from home for most people. And that is, how do you deal with life when it seems like it's all falling apart and it's in shambles and you need to put it back together again? And so I don't think Nehemiah is particularly a story that most people are super familiar with. It only appears in the lectionary one time, like in the three-year cycle. You get one chapter of the book of Nehemiah uh, on one of the years. And so it's not read very often. And we might, we could probably talk about some maybe academic reasons about why it doesn't get read as much. Uh, But the book of Nehemiah is set after the exile. So Judah and Jerusalem were uh, conquered by the Babylonians, taken from their homes. They're living across the Middle East, uh, longing for a time when they might be home again. And so the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are about returning home and rebuilding Jerusalem. Ezra is written by a, a priest, and it's about the rebuilding of the temple, whereas Nehemiah is someone who ends up becoming a governing kind of figure and tries to rebuild its walls and the kind of city structure and, and that kind of a thing. So like that's the kind of generic time frame in which we enter into the story. And so when the story starts, Nehemiah is a cupbearer, which is kind of like a glorified waiter of the king. And he lives in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at that time, which is in modern-day Iran. So it's quite a far ways away um, from Jerusalem. But what happens is there's a group of people who went down to Jerusalem. They come back, and Nehemiah is curious. How are things going in Jerusalem? What's it like there? And so the report is the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's not a great report. We can kind of glaze over it because you might not have any emotional feelings or caring about how the state of Jerusalem was for them. Uh, But if someone asked you, how's Jackson doing? And they were like, hey, is is, is that business still over on that corner? Well, no. You know, what about that lot over there? Is there things going on? And if you have to kind of talk through the things that aren't happening anymore, that can be a sad thing to talk about. People ask how, you know, uh, is the church as full as it used to be? Or, you know, is, are the kids still at home? Or have they moved away? Like, there's a lot of conversation points about how's things back home, which can be hard to talk about. And so Nehemiah is hit pretty hard by this description of how things are in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is really upset. It says he sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before God of heaven. And he's so sad 
that he's still going about his daily life, and the king sees him as like, what's going on? Like, why are you so sad? Like, you can just tell. And if you're used to, like, waiters, you're used to them giving you the most joyful, I'm so glad to help you. Can I get you anything? And when you get someone that's, like, mood is completely down, like, what is wrong? Um, and so the king notices, and the king asks. And I love the wisdom of this because he's about to ask, I would like to go help rebuild my, the home of my ancestors. And he starts, may the king live forever. Like, please don't take this as a traitor kind of thoughts or anything like that. I love you as a, our king, but why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lie and waste, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to God, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I might rebuild it. And the king granted me what I asked, and for the gracious hand of God, because the gracious hand of God was upon me. So, uh, the backdrop of Nehemiah is Nehemiah heard bad news, but decided to be a part of the rebuilding of something. He wanted to do something about it. So he didn't just hear it and sit on it. He was moved by it, spent time in prayer, but decides to get up and actually go join in the work that needed to be done. So he shows up at the scene, and that's the first important thing to do if you want to be a part of rebuilding something and doing something new, is to show up. Now, he traveled from Susa to Jerusalem, which is 976 miles. What's fun is you can put it in a Google Maps today. You can still put Susa in, and uh, it'll show like a historical marker. And it is... Uh, a 319-hour walk or a 19-hour car drive. I'm imagining he was on some sort of animal for travel, but still, it's not an easy trip in that world. Uh, it's a long trip, and uh, the almost equivalent, like within about 30, 40 miles, is it's like leaving from Jackson, Michigan to go to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, so that's quite a trip. So he sets out. And when he gets there, he's met by Judah's enemies because when Jerusalem falls and Judah falls, there's enemies around and they're happy to see that you've fallen. And he doesn't pick fights with them. He doesn't try to rub his plans in their face. Uh, instead, he just kind of waits and he spends time quietly kind of in prayer and expectation. And so uh, the text says, so I came to Jerusalem, was there for three days. Then I got up during the night I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And I think there's a lot of great wisdom in that because sometimes we want to jump in the gun and just, here's the full plan. Here's exactly what I want to get done without spending the time actually sitting with it, going and looking, uh, experiencing something, taking it all in, uh, and being in prayer before you get into that, that plan. And so Nehemiah was slow to speak, and he starts out in prayer back at the beginning of the story. Now he's in Jerusalem, and he's going on a prayer ride around the city. And it's nighttime when it's quiet, and you can really kind of reflect and think. And it says, he only took an animal that he could ride with him. He went out by night to the valley gate. Now it's going to say a bunch of place names, and they're not going to mean anything to us. But like, if you could think about going around town and, oh, 
he, you know, he went by the courthouse, and then he went by, uh, you know, pick your favorite landmark around the city. Like, he's making his way around the city to places that matter. Says he went by the Valley Gate, past the Dragon Spring, to the Dung Gate, which is a fun gate. Uh, as a fun little backstory, um, the biblical idea of hell emerges outside this gate. Uh, you can get what the point of the dung gate is. They bring stuff out there and they put it out into the valley down there and they burn it. It's their trash like waste spot. And the burning of all this kind of waste and refuse uh, is the imagery that they talk about. They, they, and the, Jesus will say like Gehenna. He's not saying hell. He's talking about this image of the trash heap outside that's on fire. Um, and so he goes by the dung gate. He inspects the walls of Jerusalem that had broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then he goes to a fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So it gets so bad, there's so much debris, there's so much in the way that he has to get off of his animal and go on foot to keep, keep making his way forward. Uh, now, I'm sure each of you have your own family stories that get shared quite a bit, that for whatever reason, you latch onto them. You love telling these stories. So I, I can't help but tell um, a family story that I wasn't there for. Uh, predates me. But my parents took my older brother, Simon, on a hike. They were living in Tennessee. And it said it was a mile and a half to this waterfall. And they get out. It looks like it's a flat, pretty level plain, easy trek. And that's not what it was. They start walking and the incline, everything starts getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And they see the adults walking the hike and they're, they're struggling. And they've got a little kid with them. And all the while, my brother was just bringing his uh, imaginary horse along with him. He wasn't riding the imaginary horse, he was just bringing it along for fun. My mom's holding on to his hand because she's afraid he's going to fall down this, the path. And uh, someone walks by and they said that they were a postman and they they'd deliver mail by foot every day, and they're like, I know a mile and a half. This is not a mile and a half. And they get to a point where my brother's like, I, we can't do this anymore. He had to tie the imaginary horse up and leave it behind. It was too much for the imaginary horse. <laughs> that is, that's a bad trek. The imaginary horse can't even make it. So they keep going, and they finally get to the waterfall. They get to the water take the shoes off and the socks off, and you want to rest because it was a long ways to get there. And you just sit and enjoy the water, and you can enjoy it, though you know you're going to have to make that same trip back. And uh, you'll be glad to know they were able to still pick up that imaginary horse on the way back. They didn't forget it. Still made the trip. Uh, we can have that in our own lives. Like, we're carrying all sorts of burdens and struggles and troubles and weight. It might not even be your own problems. It might be somebody else's that you're carrying along with you. And sometimes it gets just too hard. You can't carry it anymore. And it's okay to just spend some time to tie it up for its little spot, go that little bit further so you can get to that restful space and to just rest with God in prayer and just relax in God. 
not acting like none of those troubles exist or that they're going to, like you're not going to face them ever again because you're going to have that trip back. But it is worth it to go make that trip and to sit at the water. And so whatever kind of struggles we might be taking with us, whether it's uh, job losses or can't connect with a kid, can't connect with a parent, loved one of any sort, um, just having courage and strength to make it through the day. It's okay to every once in a while tie that little burden up, let it sit there, and go relax with God and get some clarity before going back on that journey. And so Nehemiah ties up his ride and continues on his prayer walk to Jerusalem. We don't hear much about what he really does there. It says when he went up to the valley by night and he inspected the wall, and then he turns back and enters the, by the valley gate and returns. So he spent that night in prayer walking around and goes back home. And many Christians have found prayer walking as a really important spiritual practice. Um, I don't know how many people have seen labyrinths. Have you ever seen these kind of like maze-like things in which you're supposed to be kind of prayerfully walking through the maze? And they're supposed to get to a center spot um, and so, like, when you're walking through the maze, you're supposed to be releasing and giving up the troubles and the burdens that you came in with, getting to a center spot to just kind of sit there and meditate and wait with God. And then when you leave the labyrinth, you're supposed to think about all the ways in which God has given you clarity to go back into the world and back into everyday life. And kind of interestingly, they, the practice of that labyrinth really kind of exploded around the medieval ages when people wanted to go on these Christian pilgrimages, but not everybody had money to go on these big distant pilgrimages. Um, so churches started constructing labyrinths, whether inside of a sanctuary or outdoors, um, for people to kind of go on their own spiritual trek and journey together. <clears throat> and so whether it's uh, their own, you know, their journey or our journey, and whether it's the labyrinth or just your everyday life, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself just on, I'm already in a state, you know, we've been here long enough that I can kind of go into autopilot driving into church or wherever else. And you're like, wait, how did I get here? How have I already made these amount of turns? Don't listen. Uh, uh, but it's, it's, it's weird how that happens. That you just kind of are used to, maybe it's even you park and you walk in the building and you don't even notice how you walk in the building. You're just so used to it. Um, but how can we help try to be more mindful and prayerful in our everyday walking and our everyday driving to be actually looking with fresh eyes at who God is moving in and who, who's struggling and who needs help, uh, who could use encouragement, and how do we just have a better, more prayerful mindset as we go about our day? And so Nehemiah comes back from his prayer walk and casts a vision. Here's what he says um, real quickly. The officials did not know where Nehemiah had gone or what he was doing. And it says, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest uh, that were to do the work. So he hadn't told them the work that was about to be ahead for them. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. Now, I really appreciate his clarity of he came back and he's like, he has more things than just one thing that he wants to get done, but he gives them a concrete, here's what we want to do. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. 
Now, I know we could spend a lot of time talking about the context of wall building in today's world. Uh, but what I want to say is what the importance of walls in an ancient culture meant. Uh, it was kind of what set you apart as a city versus a village. Like, you were a place on the map once you had walls. And I don't know what kind of equivalents we would have for our modern day things that, like, the fact we have a hospital makes us a step different, I don't know, uh, than other surrounding towns that don't have a hospital. Um, having uh, a courthouse or what, whatever kind of thing that, that stands out to you as setting up that we're a city. And so whatever that marker was, for them it was a wall, um, was in kind of shambles. And so they're saying, we've been dishonored, we've been disgraced, let's rebuild that thing to show that we actually have a future, we have hope. And so he provides them that motivation. We've, we're in trouble, the city's in ruins, we're suffering disgrace. He gives them, finally, background. This matters a lot. The king supports it. That matters. Uh, but also God is supporting it, and he talks about how he feels God at work uh, in this situation. And so because of that time he spent praying and planning, he gets alignment for what he wants to do. And it said that they committed themselves to the common good. Um, and I think a part of that is because they actually experienced it, that he didn't just send a letter saying, hey, go build this. He showed up, walked the space, looked it over, and looked them in the eyes and told them uh, what his hopes were for that place. So <clears throat> you might have, a, on your own prayer walks, decide, okay, I, uh, God wants me to do X, Y, Z. Now. If X, Y, or Z is important and is remarkable and is such a high, lofty vision, it's going to be ridiculed by somebody. Somebody's going to mock it. Somebody's going to say that's never going to happen. It's never going to work. And so Nehemiah's chapter ends with uh, it saying, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success. And we, his servants, are going to start building. So uh, I hope that whatever task you might try to start doing, that you see God at, at work in your life, that you wouldn't be discouraged by an initial mocking or dismissal that it could never, ever happen. Um, because the Christian story, in part, is a lot of stories in which it wouldn't ever have looked like it was going to work out, uh, whether it's uh, Good Friday or a whole series of Babylonian exile, uh, the destruction of the temple, all sorts of images and memories in which it shouldn't have worked out. Um, but if we spend time in prayer, walking mindfully, then I think we often have the comfort, courage, and clarity we need um, to walk on despite others snickering. So uh, my call for us is that maybe we might spend a little bit of time being mindful, whether it's on the roads, whether we're driving or riding, uh, being prayerful for our city and our neighborhood and our communities. Um, when we're in the space, that we're praying for our church, uh, when we're in our homes or our workplaces, that we are mindful to be praying for those places and not just going about everyday life, um, not mindful of it. 
And I want to note that the book of Nehemiah ends with, uh, later it has that the walls of Jerusalem actually do get rebuilt. And 52 days, now Troy, I assume that 52 days would be a pretty good work schedule, uh, city planning wise. Um, so there is something I think meant to be a little bit miraculous about that, of that you not only got support for a project and got it done with great rapid kind of success. Uh, and so I think despite how much snickering you might imagine or receive, um, it's worth trying uh, to follow God's vision and to walk with God. And so um, with that, I'm going to open up the space to comments and reflections and 